Let's pray. Lord, teach us not to be so afraid of sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's Lent, which means there's no getting around, well, having to talk about sin. I know it's everybody's favorite subject when they're with their friends and bragging, but definitely not something they really want to talk about, especially in church. So on the count of three, everybody groan. One, two, three. Uh, spoiler alert, the whole purpose of Lent is to let you know that because of Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of sin. To get ready for Lent, I read a bunch of articles on the world's concept of sin. Now, no surprise, for the most part, they don't even want to acknowledge it's real, let alone talk about it. Antiquated, judgmental, religious, hate speech, just a few of the descriptions I ran across. Psychological journals stated that because we are enlightened, the ancient concept of sin has been replaced by a perception of guilt and shame, both of which, by the way, can be dealt with with enough therapy. A Stanford Science Journal had an article entitled, What Does Original Sin Mean in the Light of Modern Science? The author spent his time tearing apart all the Sunday school stories he learned as a kid. Obviously, he has some issues. My favorite was, there was no Adam and Eve. Science has proven there has always been thousands of people, never just two, except he never gave an explanation of how the thousands became thousands without well, less than thousands. And his biggest problem, well, with original sin, it's how did God put it into your DNA? FYI, original sin isn't in your DNA. Your DNA is affected by original sin, but that's not how it's passed down. For the most part, we love to talk in circles when it comes to sin. Excuse it, explain it, ignore it, banish it. Call it by different names. The only thing that, by the way, God actually asks us to do is confess it, which it's strange why that seems to be so hard for us. Entering the Garden of Eden in our Old Testament lesson, the first thing we see is God at the center of all things, and the man and the woman reflecting the image of God. And it says everything is very good. I hate to shatter stereotypes of the garden. Adam and Eve didn't just sit on the couch binge-watching Netflix all day with Uber Eats and Don't Eats and delivering whatever their heart desires. Nope, that's not the Garden of Eden. I want you to notice that God, it says, came down in the cool of the day, which meant that the morning was... And Adam is going to have to labor, but he already was, but now it's going to be even harder. And then God says, woman, I'm going to increase the pain of your childbirth. In other words, all those things were realities, but there was just a slight difference in perception. You see, when sin happened, the only thing that changed about the garden and their life was Adam and Eve and how they saw the garden and their life. The garden didn't change. How they saw it did. They no longer enjoyed their work. They weren't satisfied with what they had. Everything was a lot harder than they wanted it to be. Life was just generally unfair. So how did this happen? Well, seduced by the serpent, they put themselves at the center of all things instead of God at the center of all things. Instead of being in the image of God, they decided to be God, except they aren't God, and um, they can't be God, which is why everything fell apart. You know, if you've ever wondered why the first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me, well, this is it. There's only room for one God, and if you want to try and be God, God will let you, but you're not going to like the results. A few weeks ago in our Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 48, God said, I will not share my glory with another. Ah, that sounds pretty pompous, doesn't it? 
except if the definition of God is that he can create everything in the universe in just a few days just by speaking, uh, you can see why God might say, I'm not going to share my glory because there just isn't anyone else like me. In the Jewish tradition, there are two important terms, Yetzer Hara and Yetzer Hataf. Yetzer is Hebrew for desire or instinct. Yetzer Hara is an inclination to the bad. Yetzer Hataf is an inclination toward the good. Tradition held that you were born with Yetzer Hara, the inclination toward bad. And it's only later that you develop Yetzer Hataf, the inclination toward the good. In Isaiah's prophecy, by the way, remember the one where he says, oh, you know what, if you want to choose anything, you can, and God will prove that he is God. And the king says no, and God says, you know, well, then I'm going to prove it anyway. The virgin is going to be with son. Well, Isaiah goes on to say that this child that is going to come, the Savior, and he says, before he is old enough to know the difference between good and bad. Uh, you see, that sounds strange unless you know the teaching of the Jewish belief of Yetzer Hatov, the inclination to good. It comes through an understanding of God's word. We call it confirmation. They called it bar mitzvah. Uh, the Baptists call it the age of accountability. Um, but there is more to it than just an age or memorizing scripture or ceremonies. And that's what we're going to be talking about. See, any break from God's word or will is sin. And it's singular, not plural. This is sin, not sins. It is who we are, not what we do. In the simplest form, it, it, it's focusing on ourselves, putting ourselves at the center instead of God. And we put ourselves at the center of all things, and then we complain when things don't go the way they're supposed to. Original sin is the sin that keeps on giving. It, it, it's in the perfect sense, meaning it was, it is, and it continues. Uh, the reason this is important to understand is that it isn't passed down through your genes or your chromosomes or your hair follicles. Um, it, 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 because otherwise somebody would just try to find, uh, isolate the sin gene, remove it, and voila, we'd have perfect people. It's not how it works. Sin is far more deeply embedded than genes and chromosomes. Although, by the way, your, sin, your genes and chromosomes are deeply affected by um, sin, which is why we decay and die. And because sin shatters our relationship with our Creator, sin by its very nature is relational um, against God, against each other, even against ourselves. That's what sin is. That's why when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Sin is the absence of love. Sin leaves us in need of atonement. Atonement is the reconciling of parties that have been separated. We have to be shown and taught what love is. You see, you can't read a book or go to a seminar or take a class or get a degree. Love isn't spontaneous. It, love is incarnational. It can only be experienced and shared. That's why God put skin on and came to save us, even if it meant he had to suffer and then die on a cross. God said you can't save yourself because you can't imagine or just create love because you're not God. So I will come and be love for you. Of all the forces in the universe, love is the most powerful and also the most powerless. It alone can conquer the human heart and yet can only do so with consent. And God chooses to play by those rules. He will not force you to love him, nor will he force his love on you. Yeah, I know churches and people do, but, but God won't. 
there's more tension in that thought than anywhere else in the universe because it would be so much easier if God would just say, you don't have a choice. And then we would all be saved, except that wouldn't be love. When poets and songwriters say, love is God, well, it's nothing more than romantic idealism that makes you feel good for a moment, but then it leaves you empty because, let's face it, the emotion of love comes and goes. To say that God is love, as St. John did in his letter, uh, is either the last straw, the last hope, the last anything, because you've run out of options, or the ultimate truth and the ultimate act of faith that one can live their life by. See, for the Christian, love is not primarily an emotion. It's an act of the will brought about by the soul through the power of the Holy Spirit. I know, a mouthful. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbors and to love our enemies, he never says we have to like them. Nor does he promise a warm, fuzzy feeling when we do. When he tells us to love our neighbors and love our enemies, he's asking us to work for their well-being, to care for them, especially when they don't or cannot care for themselves. This love means sacrificing our own well-being at times. Such love allows us to love our neighbors and enemies without liking them. Current example, praying for and helping the victims of the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. Neither of those countries, by the way, are especially well, friendly to Christianity. But to allow that to keep us from helping or isolating our assistance only to Christians, well, that leads us away from the gospel, not towards it. We love because God first loved us. When Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers, and John said they were like whitewashed tombs, I know it's hard to believe, but the words were spoken out of love. Speaking the truth in love doesn't mean you have to be all sugary and sweet and warm and fuzzy. It does mean that no matter what you say, no matter how you say it, after you say it, you keep standing there, face to face with your hand, your heart, and your whole extended, so that they know that the words come with an offer of both forgiveness and acceptance. You just want them to, to drop that wall that stands between the two of you. In the book of Romans, Paul uses all sorts of words to show us how God tears down the walls between us and him through Jesus. Words like free gift, grace, justification, and made righteous. Every single one of those words declares that God accepts the burden to mend the relationship, to restore us, and to save us. Never does God say, it's your job. Instead, he says, it's mine. And by the way, when I say mine, I mean God, not me. I didn't read the psalm at the beginning of worship, as I often do, because today's psalm is 32. And when I say that God accepts the burden to mend, heal, store, uh, restore, and save us, Psalm 32 is an amazing example. Uh, listen to those verses. Blessed are those whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. That's verse 1. Blessed are those to whom the Lord does not charge his sin to, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's verse 2. While I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. That's verses 3 and 4. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's verse 5. And then verses 6 and 11. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So, are you comfortable with the term sinner and sin yet? 
Sin needs to make us uncomfortable. Sin declares we are separated from God and from one another and from ourselves. And the importance of us seeing sin as what we are rather than what we do is the only way that we're ever going to be able to live out the gospel. To recognize that sin is universal, that's simply what humanity is. And the only difference, by the way, between Christians and not Christians is we are forgiven, even though we're not even close to being perfect. See, that understanding is necessary if we're going to love God, our neighbor, ourselves, and our enemies. To know that the only difference between us is that we know we're forgiven, even though we're not perfect. Dietrich Bonhoeffer noted, if my sinfulness appears to me to be in any way smaller or less detestable in comparison with the sins of others, I am still not recognizing my sinfulness at all. How can I possibly serve another person in unfeigned humility if I seriously regard his sinfulness as worse than my own? The moment we try to categorize sin and thus create a pecking order of whose sin is worser means we don't understand sin, let alone our sin. This isn't a game of who's better and who isn't. Grace is God becoming our source of wholeness, drawing us back to himself, himself even when we're busy running away. Our, our faith allows us to stand in the presence of God and say, to be honest, God, this is not who I want to be. But I can't seem to stop doing the things that hurt you and, and hurt others and hurt me. And then come the most important words. Words which God uses to show that our brokenness is not the final word. That he can make beautiful things out of our failures, like the toilet I have at the entrance to the office. Yeah, I know, but I turned it into a planner, and sometimes the most beautiful flowers are coming out of it. You see, grace isn't done creating and redeeming and loving and imagining. God loves you too much to let your sin define you. Maybe the world defines you by your sin and your failures. But God won't, because He loves you. And in His creating, redeeming love, you discover the ability to love Him back. Imperfectly, hesitantly, partially. But you learn to love Him. We worship a God who has no problems looking us in the eye and saying, I make all things, including you, new. Here's a homework assignment. Next time you mess up, silently speak the word sinner to yourself. And then keep repeating it over and over again. Instead, it, instead until, sorry, it becomes a prayer. Instead of you being ashamed or angry with yourself. And while you repeat the word, at first frustrated, then you're annoyed. Pastor's making me do this. And finally, as a prayer, an acceptance, an understanding. I want you to know that God had already forgiven you even before you finally figured it out and came to peace with yourself. In fact, God had forgiven you even before you sinned. See, everything that you were putting yourself through, all those feelings and emotions and thoughts, just like whatever sin it was that you committed, none of it changed who you were in the eyes of God. And here's the bigger truth. All the semantics and wordplay and emotions are always and have been more about us than they are about God. Here's what Luther said in his commentary on the book of Galatians. He said, when the devil accuses us and says, you are a sinner and therefore condemned, we should answer, because you say I am a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. No, says the devil, you will be condemned. And we reply, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. 
Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins and try to bring me into heaviness, distrust, despair, hatred, contempt, and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say, I am a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against you, so that with your own sword I may cut your throat and tread you under my feet. For Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I am a sinner, so often you remind me of the grace of Christ, my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not mine I lay all my sins. So when you say, I am a sinner, you do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you confess your faith with me in the words of the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.